Um, Louis has asked if you can keep your Bibles open after the reading so he can refer to it. Um, our reading today is from Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm, we'll be reading from verses 25 to 32. Um, it's on page 1176 in the Pew Bibles. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful or building others up according to their needs, that it may be benefit. I'm sorry, and do that it, may be, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whenever one of our readings begins with the word therefore, we need to ask, what is the therefore therefore? That's because what we're about to read follows directly from what has come before. And what has come before in this case is Paul's great symphony of praise and thanksgiving for all that God has done for mankind in general and for Christian believers in particular. The Apostle Paul, nearing the end of his life in a prison cell in Rome, um, is writing to inspire and to encourage a church, a young church, struggling with what it really means to follow Jesus. Like us, the Ephesians lived in 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 an age of moral confusion. Like us, they constantly felt the pull of the pagan society around them. If you were here last week, you will have heard Eddie preaching on how we change when we become Christians. Well, we're changed because we are given a new identity as sons and daughters in the family of God. We're changed because we know that it is only thanks to Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, that we were able to come out of the darkness of our former lives and into the wonderful light of Christ. We're changed because we know that all this has been done not because of any effort on our part, but because of the sheer grace of God. And we're changed, most importantly, because we have come from merely knowing about God to knowing God. And it is as people who know God that we have cultivated and we are constantly cultivating an attitude of gratitude, thanking him daily, not only for the good things we have received, but also for the bad things that he has brought us through. And that's why we obey God. The outward Evidence of our inward change 
is that we keep God's commandments. And we keep them not out of fear of punishment, but out of thanksgiving for the new life that he has given us through his Son, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And now that we understand what the therefore is therefore, we can begin to look at Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32. Now, in these verses, Paul moves away from his lofty theological exposition of our new identity in Christ to the nitty-gritty of what that new identity does, how it affects our day-to-day life. So what is the sermon about? Well, I'd like us to focus on four, the four types of sinful behavior that Paul mentions in these verses, namely lying, anger, stealing, and bad language. And we will look at these in the light of the two, those two dramatic phrases in our reading, don't give the devil a foothold and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. If I had to summarize uh, this sermon in just a few words, I would say, because we are a new creation, we do not give the devil a foothold. And because we are a new creation, we do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But we know that we cannot achieve this in our own strength. So we need to look to and, and use the means that God has provided to enable us to obey his commands and so live lives that give pleasure to him. But before I expand on that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, once again as we break open your word, we pray that you will break open our hearts and our minds to receive whatever you have that is for us this morning. Amen. I must begin by pointing out that Ephesians is not a set of instructions on how to become a Christian. It is not for unbelievers, but for existing followers of Jesus who want to make progress in their discipleship. Now, if you, if you read through the whole letter, you will see again and again how, the, how Paul stresses that following Jesus is... Has, in following Jesus is a principle of displacement and replacement. We don't just take off the dirty old clothes, but we put on new clothing. We don't just get rid of our negative attitudes and habits, but we pick up new attitudes and habits. And Paul knows only too well that this is easier said than done. Why is that? Well, because our transformation does not happen in a vacuum. It takes place in the real world and in the environment, that godless environment in which you and I have grown up and to which we've become accustomed, and the pull of which we feel every single day of our lives. So the problem is not the environment. The problem is us as we try to accommodate two opposing worlds within ourselves. And that's why we make a hash so often of following Jesus. And now let's have a quick look at the sins that Paul mentions in this morning's passage from Ephesians. He highlights four things, as we've already said, that we must put away, namely anger, stealing, lies, and bad language. 
Each of these undermines us spiritually, weakens us, and potentially gives the devil a foothold in our lives. Sin makes us vulnerable to spiritual attack. The devil is not omniscient, but he is watchful. And the Bible tells us in Peter chapter 5 that he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And as we examine each of these sins, we should notice three things. First of all, that they all concern human relationships. The Bible makes it clear that our faith is not primarily a one-to-one mystical encounter with God. It is first and foremost lived out in our day-to-day lives with one another, with other human beings. Second, as I've already pointed out, each negative admonition is balanced by a corresponding positive disposition. Every time we drop a bad habit, we pick up a good habit. And thirdly, we can never separate doctrine from ethics. That means that what we believe has to correspond with how we behave. Our reading starts, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are members of one body. Why is speaking the truth so important? Why is it such a big deal in the Christian life? It's because it's at the very heart of the unity that we are called to maintain within the body of Christ. The ninth commandment says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That means no bad-mouthing of one another, not spreading malicious gossip, not lying to one another. You see, we belong together in the Christian community, and we follow the one who is the embodiment of truth. In fact, Jesus even described himself as the way, the life, and the truth. Paul refers to our conversion as us having heard the word of truth, and he describes the godless as those who suppress the truth. Our reading says, put off falsehood, and how important and how vital that is in an age of fake news and mass deceptions that we read about every week. And when eventually we get to Ephesians chapter 6, which describes the full armor of God, you'll notice that the very first piece of that armor is the belt of truth. But what about anger? What's wrong with that? I mean, even Jesus got angry and drove the money changers out of the temple, didn't he? Surely not all anger is wrong. Well, notice that our verse doesn't say never get angry. It says, in your anger, do not sin. As Christians, it's important that we get angry about the right things. The psalmist is seized by hot indignation because of the wicked who have forsaken God's law. And if we don't get angry when we encounter poverty, injustice, victimization, exploitation, and the like, it's not a sign 
of our Christian maturity. It's a sign of our hard-heartedness. However, most of our problems are not to do with righteous anger, but with unrighteous anger. When we let what began as getting annoyed with someone turn into a personal animosity, that's a sin. And when we let animosity turn into a desire for revenge, that's sin. That kind of anger eats away at us, and if we remain angry for any length of time, it destroys our peace, it deprives us of sleep, it even deprives us of our ability to pray to God, to praise his name. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled with your brother and sister. And then come and offer your gift. You know how much better it is to be reconciled before we go to bed than to wake up at three o'clock in the morning wishing we had done so. But even as I speak these words, I'm deeply aware that there may be someone here who has been deeply hurt in the past and may find it very difficult to not to be angry and may find it impossible to ask or seek reconciliation. And if that's you, don't leave the church this morning without getting one of us to pray for you and pray with you. And then there's stealing. Thou shalt not steal. It's the eighth commandment, and most of us think it doesn't really apply to us. I mean, most of us don't go around stealing each other's cash or each other's possessions. However, this commandment also applies to tax evasion and customs dodges, which rob our government of what they need to provide the services that we all enjoy. It also applies to employers who exploit their employees. It applies to employees who give poor service or work short time, and those who take for their own personal use those bits and pieces from the workplace. You know, it's safe to say that anything that you do in secret that you wouldn't want your employer to see is a sin and violates this commandment. Paul tells us to stop work, to stop stealing and work. Now, that may sound brutal to those of us who, for one reason or another, cannot work to earn money. I believe this commandment applies to all work, paid and unpaid. What Paul is saying here is that our generosity should always exceed our acquisitiveness, whether we're waged or unwaged. All that we have, all that we receive, comes from God. Therefore, our mentality should be one of not just receiving for our own benefit, but of giving generously, as generously as we're able to, to those whose need is greater than our own. Every one of us, no matter what our material resources, can contribute to the wider community. And in my experience, St. John's people have been outstanding in that regard.
Next, the Apostle Paul turns from the use of our hands to the use of our mouths. Human speech is a most wonderful gift. Other creatures communicate with all kinds of different noises, but only human beings can speak and achieve great things through the power of speech. Do not let, our verse says, do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful in building others up according to their needs, that they may benefit, that it may benefit those who listen. The Greek word from, uh, translated here as unwholesome is sapros. It is a word that uh, is used for rotten fruit. And, he, and Paul applies it here to rotten talk, whether it's unkind talk, whether it's blasphemy or vulgarity, it's all rotten. Jesus taught about the significance of speech when he said that our words reveal what our hearts, what is in our hearts, and that on judgment day we will have to account for every careless word that we have uttered. You can find that in Matthew chapter 12. In another very well-known passage, the Apostle James writes, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise the Lord and Father, and with it we curse other human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. But again, Paul doesn't just give us a prohibition, but urges us to use the t- our tongues to praise God and to build one another up. And God knows how much we all need to be affirmed and built up. And how great it is when another person comes up to us and says, well done, you've done that so well. Isn't it wonderful? But we can't leave this passage without reflecting on this for a few moments on that very strange phrase, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Grief is something that is felt by people. And although the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity, he is often thought of as some sort of disembodied energy or power. Yet it is clear from this and other passages of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is fully personal in the same way that God the Father and God the Son are persons. He has feelings. But how, how do we know what grieves him? Well, part of the answer lies in his name. He is the Holy Spirit who has sealed us for the day of redemption. He, was, he has put his mark upon us and he has made us his own. It follows, therefore, that anything that is unholy in us, anything that comes between us and God, any, including any lying, any unrighteous anger, any dishonesty, any rotten speech, not only gives the devil a foothold, but also grieves the Holy Spirit. The danger with all sermons on Christian morality is that they leave us feeling discouraged. 
because they remind us that we are all sinners by name and sinners by nature. But before we all throw in the towel, um, let let me remind you that God has provided uh, certain remedies. He never asks us uh, for obedience without giving us the means for obeying. God doesn't play games with us. He doesn't command us to do things without providing us with the tools to do those things. The Apostle Peter reminds us, uh, and he reassures us with the words, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. The, the 17th century um, Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford um, wrote a book called The Trial and Triumph of Faith, and he uses a delightful phrase which says the same thing. It says, he says, the law of God, honeyed with the love of Christ, hath majesty and power to keep us from sin. I want to read that again. The law of God, honeyed with the love of Christ, hath a majesty and power to keep us from sin. What Rutherford is telling us is that when we know Jesus and we find ourselves in a new and life-enhancing relationship with our Heavenly Father, we will not allow anything to endanger that relationship. In fact, we grow in, as we grow in that relationship, we will actually derive great pleasure from obeying God's commandments. I want to close with another very quaint um, extract. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1647, which says, this, says it like this. The Spirit of Christ imbues, no, sorry, the Spirit of Christ subdues and imbues the will of man to do freely and cheerfully what the law says we are to do. The Spirit of Christ subdues and imbues the will of man to do freely and cheerfully what the law says we are to do. And my prayer is that every one of us here this morning may grow into disciples of Jesus who not only do what is right, but love doing what is right for the greater good of our community and for the greater glory of God.